You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Are people misunderstanding market liquidity and what knock-on effects could that have? Welcome to the first of our summer interviews here at The Knock-On Effect. Hello and welcome to The Knock-On Effect. I'm Alex Rosenberg here with Justine Underhill. Hello, hello. And joining us from Woodbridge, England is Roger Hurst. That's right. Hello. The, how, how is summer in Woodbridge? I mean, it's been an absolute stunner of a, of a summer so far as it has been in the whole of the Northern Hemisphere. It's been absolutely beautiful. Okay. Uh, so today we're not going to actually end up in a, in a strange place like most weeks. That's because we're doing the first of our two-part summer interview series where we'll focus much more squarely on the knock-on effects of different market moves. And so this week we're talking to Mark Dow, and next week we are going to be talking to our boss, Ralph Powell. That's right. Uh, so, so we're going to launch into it. Mark Dow has a really interesting thesis about market liquidity, and, and we touch a bit on the knock-on effects if he's right uh, toward the end there. But here you go. Enjoy our interview with Mark Dow. Mark Dow is the founder of Dow Global Advisors, and he also writes the Behavioral Macro blog. Mark, thanks for joining Roger, Justine, and I today. Thank you. Thanks, guys, for having me. First question, how are the waves out where you are? (laughs) Today, there's not much going on. The water, though, is very warm, so uh, we should have a swell coming through shortly uh, that should improve things. Cool. Uh, so, so good transition into our actual topic, which is uh, another kind of liquidity, uh, market liquidity. A, a lot of people have been, you know, talking about that equity markets, bond markets aren't really as liquid as we think. That you know, high frequency trading could dry up. That there's a lot of short vol um, strategies they could dry up, and that more generally, you know, e- ETFs aren't as liquid as you think. And more generally, the Fed is sort of taking away liquidity from the markets, and and that when things get get bad, they would get very bad. I think I'm sort of accurately uh, paraphrasing this argument. I, I, I'm, I'm told that you have a different take on market liquidity right now. Yeah, I, I just think people throw the word market liquidity around without understanding what it means, right? They're, 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 so when you hear someone say liquidity but not really define it, uh, you have to be a little bit suspect about what they're saying. Uh, there's, there, the, the three basic types of liquidity are very, very different. The first type is what people are usually referring to and they often don't understand. They're thinking about systemic liquidity, which is what central banks uh, typically provide. 
right? So are there enough reserves in the system so the banks can settle with each other when they make payments in the federal and you know, in the Fed fund system? So that's that's the kind of liquidity um, that that a lot of people think of. But it's not the kind of liquidity that you were just talking about. I mean, a lot of what you were just talking about really is transactional liquidity, right? Can I get out of a position that I got into? And that's, you know, you were mentioning ETFs, but it could be high yield bond positions or anything that tends to have less liquidity than normal stocks and even less liquidity when, when, when under stress. So I call that transactional, transactional liquidity. And then the third kind of liquidity is uh, rollover liquidity corporate rollover liquidity. And that means when your bond comes due or when you need financing, uh, can you, can, do you have access to the bond market or do you have access to banks? So there's that corporate liquidity, transactional liquidity, and systemic liquidity. The only one that federal, the Federal Reserve or central banks can control is the systemic liquidity. It's got nothing to do really with the other kinds of liquidity. I mean, if I'm sitting here and I want to get out of my ETF, it doesn't really matter if the Fed is easing, easing or, or increasing reserves in the system or draining reserves from the system. It doesn't affect my position, and it doesn't affect the position of the banks that are making markets on the other side. They just don't. They've got excess reserves. It doesn't really matter for them. So people are conflating these, and it's a great red flag when you see people conflating um, types of liquidity. Don't trust their analysis on liquidity. It's just a, 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 a basic test. So that's that's basic that's my take on liquidity but, but could could you make the argument that the fed by providing stimulus measures lowering uh rates um across the board has you know spurred more and more risk on appetite and so that means that more people are going into other assets like the stock market um and that boosts uh what you call transactional liquidity too you could make that argument but it's not a good one Right, it's a very common <laughs> argument, but it's, but it's but it's not a good one. Uh, and the reason is uh, we're not. This is the biggest single mistake that investors make, and analysts make, and strategists make. It's implicitly overstating the efficiency of of markets. We assume that we're extremely price sensitive when it comes to it comes to money. That when the price of low is money, we want to borrow, and the price of money is high. Uh, we, uh, we, we don't want to borrow. And it abstracts from all the other factors that go almost entirely that go into the borrowing and lending uh, process. And the most important factor over time, it, within reason, unless you have rates at 10% or 15% like they had at the beginning of the 80s and end of the 70s, the most important factor is risk appetite. You know, so if you're going to borrow, if you're just a regular homeowner guy, you're going to borrow if, you, think, if, you, if uh, you feel secure about your job and you feel 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 good about your, your income prospects. That's much more important than whether the Fed is at 1% or 3%, right? And, we, and so this runs directly counter to the nature of your question, that, we're, that everything is driven by the price of money and it leads to, you know, we hear all the arguments about malinvestment and resource imbalances. Yeah, guys are claiming that the resource imbalances everywhere right now, you know, misallocations of money. Tell me where they are, right? I don't see any really big pockets of, yeah, you can point at the price of Netflix or Tesla or something, right? But we're not seeing anywhere near the kind of systemic leverage that we saw in, in the last crisis. And, and more to the point, right, the, we had, uh, you know, it, 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 everyone was borrowing in 2006, right? That was the, right, the, the, the sweet spot for subprime lending and all the egregious leveraging up of the financial system um, happened between 2005 and 2007, right? Well, what was the Fed funds rate in that period? It was five. So 
everyone was scrambling to borrow and lend when the Fed funds rate was five. Fast forward a few years later, 2010, 2013, in that window, Fed funds rate was zero and no one was lending and no one was borrowing. So obviously there are other factors that are, that are, that are more important. Uh, and the, the, the mistake that most people make, they recognize the role to some degree of risk appetite, but they just underestimate it. Because in the back of our heads, we were trained, it was drilled into, our, in, into us that markets are efficient, the efficient market hypothesis. And it just doesn't hold up. Uh, it does, doesn't hold up in practice. We had a massive bubble, uh, you know, 2005, 2007, that was a very big bubble. Fed fund rates were higher. The money supply was expanding as the Fed was withdrawing liquidity from the system. If they took the, rate, the base rate, the fund rate, fund, the funds rate from one to five, they were taking systemic liquidity out of the system. But the money supply was exploding. Why? Because everybody wanted to borrow and everybody wanted to lend. And this underscores the point. What drives the money supply, what drives most of the liquidity that matters to us is whether people want to borrow or lend, uh, not so much what the, what the Fed is doing. The Fed can signal, the Fed can indicate, the Fed can suggest, but they really can't do much uh, that directly. And the changes in the way we lend, moving from loanable funds to collateral-based lending, and the Fed changing the way they operate in the market from uh, from uh, going going from the old um, intervention system to the one where now they use uh, the overnight interest on excess reserves and the reverse repo just changes it it makes it even 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 weaker so I think you know if you look back at the past you'll see uh, even the bubble we had in two thousand where was fed funds rate five and a half so if you know if you think you're going to make two hundred percent on your house as was the the mindset in two thousand and six. It does, you know, whether the borrowing at three percent and borrowing at six percent is the same number to you. So people really, really do themselves a disservice falling into the into the efficient market kind of mindset and thinking that the price of money dictates everything. It's much, much, much less than people think, and this is the single biggest error that investors have made. So many guys have been bearish since two thousand and nine. They've been sitting on the sidelines because what the Fed is doing inevitably is going to blow the system. And they just don't understand the transmission mechanism of monetary policy. And this ambiguity around the word liquidity is, the, is a prime example of it. So I guess there's a couple of things that probably concur with what you're saying. And I guess in that period, 2005 to 2007, in some ways, 5% was a small price to pay versus the expected returns um, that people were, were going to receive for borrowing that money. And as you said, um, house prices uh, were almost doubling over that period, so 5% cost of capital looked pretty, pretty low. And I guess, secondly, um, the transactional volumes that we saw in the mid-2000s, maybe they were the aberration um, compared to where we were at pre-2000 levels. What we saw in the mid-2000s was this very, very high volume relative to almost any other part of history. So is in some ways a little bit of this effectively what we're seeing today is people looking through the rearview mirror at a period which was unusual where leverage uh, was incredibly high. Um, and I guess, you know, there are other areas as well where, you know, if we look at um, things like the, the sort of the transactional volumes that we saw um, in, in the corporate bond markets over the last 10 years, and something that always kind of came back to, to me when I was kind of on a sales desk was when we had clients looking to sell corporate bonds, particularly the lower end of the corporate bond market, it was always very, very hard. Same with mid-cap stocks. When they wanted to sell, there just wasn't the liquidity there. And they always said, you know, the liquidity is there when the markets are going up, but when you want 
to get out when the markets are going down, that liquidity dries up. Do you think there is an element that, that there is that sort of um, environment today where the liquidity is not quite there when you want to actually sell something and therefore that liquidity is not quite so, so enticing? So that's uh, uh, a, a lot to unpack there, but the first part is, yeah, there's a lot of looking in the rearview mirror at that exceptional period and, 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 and thinking that might apply today. But I, I think it's more, I really think it's more than that. I think the bigger factor is that this, this belief that uh, the allocation of resources is driven by, principally by the, prime, the price of money. And I think within a range, within a reason, within a, re, uh, within a reasonable level, you know, 10, 8, whatever that number is, um, it, it, it really is not the primary uh, driver at all. It's secondary or tertiary, right? That's really the big problem. Yeah, it gets distorted a little bit when people look in the rearview mirror at what happened the last time. The other thing I would say um, is I, I think the argument about um, transactional liquidity being a big menace, uh, there's two, two components to it. One, these are guys that are looking for new theses um, to prove themselves right after having been wrong for a long time. Look at a lot of the guys that are uh, that are proposing it, uh, that, that are advancing this most actively, and these were the guys that were anti-Fed uh, the whole the whole way that they were fear, afraid of hyperinflation and debasing the dollar and all the typical things that that you hear from them. So, I think uh, uh, that's uh, that's some of what's behind um, what some what, uh, behind this thinking. So the 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 second part about this, so the first part is that people are still kind of find new reasons. To be right, they want to be vindicated, and they're and they're and they're reaching a bit. The uh, the second uh, the whole thing about uh, the the prop desks and, and, and not being as active, um, yeah. Although it wasn't really the prop desks so much that were taking these big positions, there were other these were capital positions of the bank. So there's some difference between uh, these two. I'm not sure that the, it wasn't the prop desks that were holding all the super seniors. So it, it um, I, I don't know how that cor- that, that that correlation is is all that strong. But much more importantly, when the client calls you, the example you used of the client calling you and, and wanting to unload their bond position, the corporate bond position, he wanted to sell it. He didn't have to sell it. The reason we had a crisis is because a lot of people had to sell. Uh, uh, right? Uh, I remember buying bonds, quasi-sovereigns in Russia and things like that in 2008 because, because uh, there were banks that had to sell them because they were levered up. So I think the liquidity issue in uh, high-grade bonds and, and high-yield bonds and the, and the typical places that pe- people cite is much less pernicious because these things are just not owned on a leveraged basis, right? Mm. So if, if you're taking an equity hit, the system, if it's a hit to your equity and you don't have to unwind anything, yeah, that's bad. You lose a lot of money and you're not happy, right? But the systemic implications aren't there. The systemic implications when you have – I'm forced to sell – because I'm, I borrow a lot of money, you know, I'm levered five to one or whatever. And then when I sell, it triggers someone else going through their, their limits, their risk limits, and then they have to sell. And then you get that cascading unwind of risk that ends up kind of in panic that, that then the authorities need to come out of short circuit or else it can turn into something really bad. That's not there yet. And it might be I guess by, by the time this is, this is over, but it's not anywhere near that now. So I think all these reasons, I think the transactional uh, liquidity risk that people cite is just way overstated. I'm not saying people won't get hurt, and we know we know liquidity when when things get bad, right? Uh, you know things turn adverse. Liquidity just disappears. I mean, we just, you'll you won't be able to sell your Nigerian T bills. You just won't, right? Um, but if you if you're a big bank and you own them on a levered basis, you have to, and that's when things get really ugly.
Just following up on that one, I think one of the areas which people are always concerned about today is this market structure and how the market structure's changed. And I guess 15 years ago, you saw that active managers, and these are kind of rough numbers, but they're an approximation, but active managers were maybe 70% of the, the daily volumes. Um, whereas today, there's been a complete role reversal that the active managers are far less. And what we now see is that the rules-based funds, high-frequency traders, algos, the risk parity style, they are today 70% of the market, and they are largely kind of program computer-driven types of investors. And I guess this is that concern that's recurring concern is that uh, today, unlike before, where you had to pick up a phone, call your floor broker, go down to the floor, look for bids or offers. Today, all it takes is that one quick flick of the switch and a whole draft of bids could disappear from the market in a fraction of a second, leaving it very, very vulnerable if and when the market does turn. Yeah, I, I don't think I just think it's reaching for doom. I think I really feel like it's reaching for doom because, the, again, these things aren't owned. Uh, these, these things aren't owned on a, on, a, on a levered basis, one. And two, a lot of those people that are buying are not necessarily algorithmic. I mean, I'm sure they're not algorithms running in the bond market because it's just not that liquid. Right. And they're ETFs and they're ETFs uh, that, you know, that are held by the people who like the Ritholtz group, these you know, RIAs, guys that have asset allocation models that they don't, their work is basically setting up asset allocation models and then holding their clients' hands so they don't do stupid things when, when, when the pressure comes. So they're not levered and they're not going to sell, right? So even if it gets less liquid, um, if you don't have people owning them on a levered basis and you have fewer discretionary uh, accounts that are, that, that, uh, that are going to panic and sell, I just don't think the scope is that much greater. Yeah, there'll be mark to market, and there may be some market failure, air pocket kind of things. We, we you know, that we've seen the, so that could happen. I just don't think it's kind of the systemic, the anywhere near the kind of systemic risk that that people are kind of uh, its proponents are almost hoping for. Right, that's that's the vibe I get. Does does that mean that? As long as financial conditions, the financial conditions index, the, the, the Goldman Sachs one, as long as that stays low, which it currently is, that's actually telling us that liquidity is still pretty impressive on a global basis. Uh, which, uh, which liquidity are we talking about? Transactional? That financial conditions index, which is very, very low at the moment. I mean, isn't that implying that liquidity conditions globally are pretty much hunky-dory at the moment? Yeah, I don't think that's a really good, I, I just don't think that analysis is that helpful because it's lumping all the liquidities together again, right? So it's almost like it's because it's just way too close to that argument that central banks are pumping liquidity in the system and, and it's all good. But that's not what's making financial conditions where they are. A lot of the financial conditions are from spreads coming in, right? Um, because people are just taking risk. It has much more to do with us taking risk than what the central banks are doing. After all, the Fed has raised rates six times. Uh, you know, and I know someone's going to come, come cite and say, no, but the Bank of Burma, they have quantitative easing and it's all fungible. Uh, but and I'm, I'm not comparing the ECB and, and the Bank of Japan to, to Burma. But what I'm saying is people keep rolling their arguments. The Fed has raised rates six times and they're, and they're paring back their balance sheet. And none of the effects predicted by the, the doomers um, have materialized, right? So I think they've got to revisit their playbook. And they're saying, well, no, not yet. It's going to happen. Just wait until Burma tightens. Uh, and it's just not, it's, it's just not there. So that, that, that myth that all this liquidity in the system is, you know, without saying it, central banks behind it, right? It's, it's, just, it's just misleading. The Two of the three types of liquidity that I mentioned are created and destroyed by us, not by the central banks, whether or not we're taking risk. That, that's what matters. Now, if the, Fed, if the Fed raises rates enough or too fast, it can scare us and we pull back on our risk appetite. 
and then we can have problems. This is why the Fed is going slowly, right? But the liquidity in and of itself, it's not a big deal because we continue to create liquidity. Money supply in the U.S. is increasing as fast as it has at any time over the past X years, even though the Fed is shrinking its balance sheet and, and, and raising rates. So I don't, I almost don't want to give uh, cover uh, to, to that, uh, that, that, uh, that argument because it implies that central banks are driving the financial conditions. And that's a part of it, but it's, it's, it misses large parts of it that, w- that we drive. Yeah, so, so Mark, you make a really interesting case here, uh, but this is the knock-on effect. So I'll challenge you to take us, take us one step further. Um, it is such a common argument that, that market liquidity isn't what it seems and, and et cetera, and, and you know, possibly conflating these three types of liquidity. So is this just something people say that they're concerned about, or is there some market impact from people having the wrong impression about liquidity? In other words, is there something inefficient that's actually happening uh, in, in investment decisions that perhaps we could uh, profit from if people are, are misunderstanding what's going on with liquidity right now? Yeah. So I think it is a lot of it. People genuinely misunderstand it, and, and so and they're genuinely afraid of it. They're, they're not just saying it. Some people uh, are placing more emphasis on these arguments because their old arguments didn't work, for sure. But there, there are a lot of people who, who really believe it. In general, um, and I know this after the expansion, I've been saying this for a long time, um, and it gets harder to say because, you know, the expansion goes on in time and stuff. Um, uh, but the, 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 the biggest, the money, the money, uh, the money's been made fading others' fear of central banks, right? That's where the money's been made. So when there are moments where people are pricing in the high probability of a, of a, of a Fed policy error or, you know, Q, a QT uh, destroying the bond market and shooting up bond volatility. That was a, that was a, uh, a fashionable one for about, for about a month. Remember in last year, all the big managers were buying bond vol. And it, all, it, these are the kind of you know, these are the kind of stories, I guess that 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 uh, uh, you know that are propagated. But at the end of the day, uh, fading that fear of the Fed, the Fed is going to get it right. They already have gotten it right. The, uh, the the likelihood of them blowing up the system is very low. They're going to they understand that there's been a financial boom over the past 30, 40 years, and that's created a lot of credit overhang that we're working our way through. So they're not they're going to go slowly. They're not going to scare the market. They're going to pare back on QT slowly, not because they couldn't do it overnight without any implication whatsoever for our markets, but because they don't want to scare us. So anytime you see exaggerated fear of a Fed policy error, fade it. That's that's been the money trade uh, since the beginning of the GFC, and I think it, it continues to to be the money trade. Obviously, not as dramatic because a lot of people, have, not a lot of people, some people have caught on. They're, now they understand the transmission mechanism, monetary policy better. They've been forced to by having made errors, uh, and 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 they're not gonna they're not gonna fall for it. But when, if if and when you see that, uh, then you you definitely want to fade it. And um, speaking of knock on effects, um, I'm just wondering what you see in terms of you know if we do have pretty good transactional liquidity in terms of uh, this gets into depth of order book in the markets and, and other things. Uh, how that relates to risk itself. Um, There's actually an interesting paper that was just published uh, by researchers at BGU, um, and they don't necessarily say that correlation is causation, but they did find that the more liquid the market is in terms of transactional liquidity, the more volatile 
becomes the average appetite for taking on risk because, um, you know, conditions are, are seen as, as fairly good. Do, do you see this as part of a, a larger cycle that, you know, as liquidity is good, people do take on more risk, um, which then ends up leading into uh, the, the boom cycle that, that we see? Yeah. Yeah. So the tra- so typically what happens, the way a cycle plays out is that uh, you have a recession and you have financial problems, maybe. Right. In this last one, we, we certainly did. The, the Federal Reserve comes in and provides systemic liquidity to make sure all the banks have enough. Because remember, these banks were running on such high leverage and they had to pay it down that they actually needed more high quality liquid assets. Right. So the demand for those went up a lot. Uh, and the Fed provides that in the first instance. In this particular case, because so much of the, the plumbing in the money markets and such broke, the Fed also had to fix those. That's what, Q, uh, that's what QE1 was really all about. It was really a credit easing. After that, they tried, they, they tried to you know, pump, pump money through those pipes once they fixed them. But really, the pumping of money, and, and they can't pump the money through the, the pipes. They have to create an environment where we decide that we want to do that. And as we do that, then transaction liquidity starts to come back. So it's really a function. It starts with our risk appetite. And then it does, as you say, the mechanism you described, it does kind of feed on itself because prices go up, transaction liquidity improves as a result of our risk appetite. And then risk, risk, and then others say, oh, wow, that looks good. I want some of that. And then they increase risk appetite in the aggregate even further by coming online. In this particular, uh, in, in this particular economic cycle, we had an interesting effect after the elections because there were a lot of people that were fighting um, – so there, there were a lot of people that were fighting the recovery in the U.S. Uh, because of their, their, ideal, uh, their anti-Fed ideology and they thought the Fed was going to blow everything up and, and that kind of stuff. And they didn't like the policies that were being um, – the, the, the rescue policies. They didn't, don't believe in government intervention ideologically. But there were a lot of people who maybe a little less ideological but, are, but very political who didn't want to buy into it either. So when, when, when Trump got elected, that allowed a lot of people who have been sitting on the sidelines – um, because they didn't believe, right, the story, they, fighting the recovery, it allowed them to come in, and that boosted risk appetite even further. You know what I mean? So it kind of notches up over time. People, you know, p- what, what really tends to happen in these processes, people look around and say, are people around me making, am I secure in my position, and are people around me making money? Those are the two most important questions behind liquidity, the kinds of liquidity, the transactional kind and the, and the corporate kind that we, we, we were talking about. Those, not the price of money, again, with, unless it's 15% or 10% or 8%, you know, within, within reason. So, yeah, that process, it, that's how that process works, and it keeps going. You know, you bring more people into it, and the aggregate risk appetite builds. We're now at a point where everyone says, okay, things are pretty good. But anytime we get a little frothy, like we did in January, and maybe even a little bit now, people start looking around and saying, oh, my gosh, I could imagine this thing falling really easily because we're, we're looking in the rearview mirror at, at the GFC, and those scars are still are still kind of there. You say have a little bit of that same thing in, in, in the real economy, and this is what tends to check us, right? And, and so we pull back, we slow down, and then earnings slowly but surely continue to catch up, and we digest those gains, we digest the rate hikes, and then we move on again, right? Um, and, and, and then we take risk appetite higher. Everyone goes, well, this is going to end badly. Of course it does. Every cycle does end badly. But the memories of, um, from the GFC are so fresh and so easy to, to, to bring back to the surface that we kind of have a self-checking mechanism. And this is why I think uh, both, both in the real economy and the financial economy, uh, and I think this is why the cycle is going to be much, much longer still than, than people think because – Cycles end when, pe- not, uh, when people get too far out over their skis, 
taking risk. They, they've got too much leverage. They've hired too many people. They've invested too much. Something changes their expectations, and they need to dial all that back. They lay people off. They, they, they pair back uh, on, on, their, uh, on their investment. And then that has knock on, that, that has knock on effects that, that has knock on effects uh, on the real economy, and it starts to feed on itself. But if you're not if you're not that extended, it takes a much bigger initial shock to get you into that mode where businesses pair back and people get laid off and aggregate demand uh, uh, declines. So I think that's that's the process we're going to see uh, going forward. This this transactional uh, demand. Um, uh, boost from boosted risk appetite does feed on itself for a while, and ultimately, though it may be a long drawn out process this time because of our memories, um, will will culminate in too much risk, and then then uh, and then every everybody getting hurt. If you remember, I mean, I'm old enough to to uh, have had a, a grandparent who lived through the depression, and uh, they cleaned their plate, and they couldn't stand to see wasted food, and it it changed their behavior for the rest of their lives. And I think a lot of the people who have lived through a couple of financial these financial uh, crises. Um, are similarly scarred. It's going to be it's going to be with them forever. So they're going to you know the, in the aggregate either they're going to die off or they're going to slowly creep back into the risk pool, and 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 that memory of of of, of what can happen to you if you get caught out in in a bubble uh, is 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 what's keeping us in check and what's extending the uh, extending the, the the risk cycle and the and the global economic cycle. Also, it helps that the rest of the globe is behind us, behind the U.S. In their in in their in their economic cycles, and that gives us more slack um, and and more uh, runway. Well, well, I, I know that my grandchildren will be talking about the hyperinflation that was caused by QE that uh, their grandparent experienced. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, well, yeah. <laughs> Mark Dow of uh, Dow Global Advisors, really always uh, enjoy talking to you so much. Thanks so much for your uh, insight this week. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. And Mark, where can people find more of your thoughts on the market here? Well, I, I have a, 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 a Twitter handle called Behavioral Macro, and it's, it's, uh, it's subscription-based. Uh, it's not very much. It's 30 bucks a month and renewable month to month. If you don't like it, you get out. If you like it, great. Uh, and I help a lot of guys with structuring their risk. They want to, how do I think about uh, this? What might be a good way to put on a long in the euro? Uh, what are you thinking about these macro positions? So, uh, I do a lot in DM, and I do a lot in the, in the mainstream. Uh, and it's you know behavioral macro. That's it. At behavioral macro, it's a Twitter a Twitter account. You can get all kinds of stuff there. I don't have a lot of followers there. You know, I only have a couple hundred. Um, so it's um, there's a lot of good interaction, high quality interaction on it. Great. So ho- hopefully people will check that out. But uh, Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. So. Roger, I think we have a, a new nickname name for you. I think you're now officially Roger the Doom Reacher Hearst. Yeah, that, that's probably true. I'd probably be on the other side of that argument most of the time. But I mean, that was pretty brilliant. I really enjoyed that. I, I really enjoyed listening to that argument, didn't you? Yeah, I thought I, it was great. Well, I, I always uh, think Mark is is pretty pretty hilarious. But but what, what did what did you think of his points? Do you do you think that I I, I didn't be interested in your take on his liquidity thesis, but more generally that you do well just shorting fears about central banks? Because I, I feel like that's not uh, a trade that, that you'd hop onto. Uh, that's mainly because I'm in the, the wealth protection side of the equation where you know I'm, I'm more bothered about preserving my wealth rather than necessarily making uh, loads of capital. Um, and I think what, what people forget is that um, in some ways there is this uh, there is this kind of you, know, you never stand in front of the Fed and that's the right view to take until you get the big reset. And, and this is what people forget is that most people do not get out 
before the big reset. The fast money, the fast traders, those who are really on top of the market may do, but the majority of people are caught behind it. And that is the actual reality. But having said that, if you have not faded the Fed, if you've gone with the Fed, you've done very, very well. And I think it will probably remain that way for, for a little bit of time yet. But, but I'm also not sure what is fading the Fed. Is fading the Fed uh, the implication that they're going to tighten too quickly? Or is fading the Fed the view that they won't do enough and actually inflation will take off? So there's a little bit of uncertainty around what the concept of fading the Fed really is. And something that I also liked about what he said was um, the, the breaking down the different types of liquidity. I do think that definitions oftentimes get muddled. And so having three clear, distinct types of liquidity rather than lumping, lumping it all into one uh, was fairly helpful. However, I, from my point of view, I would actually say they're, they're far more interconnected um, than, than he seems to believe. Um, so that's, that's where I, I differ from him a little bit. Yes. Yeah, so, so some difference, I, I think I'm more on Mark's side than, than the, the two of you, but, uh, you know, I, what, what can I say? I'm here with the, the doom reacher and, and what's, what's your nickname? If, if, if Roger's the doom reacher, doom reacher, I'm the, uh, the bust cycle holder. Okay. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I've heard catch here, but uh, that's all right. So, so that was our interview with Mark. Um, again, the first of our two summer interviews. Stay tuned. Uh, next week, we'll be interviewing our boss, Ral Paul. Did, did I say that right? Ral Paul. Ral Paul. Ral Paul. R- Roger, how do you say it? I'd go for Pal. Uh, we should all take bets before next week when yeah, we ex- talk to him. Exactly. Uh, if you, as always, if you want to write in and tell us how to say our boss's name, uh, our email address is podcast at realvision. Dot com. Um, and we are offering a, a prize, by the way, because we'll, we'll, after next week, we'll get back to our normally scheduled ending up in a weird place. Um, and if you come up with a pathway that we use or, or even just give us a really good idea, we will send you the props from that week's show. It's very exciting. And we've already started to get some submissions for ideas. So make sure yours is uh, included in that. Yeah. Cool. Or okay. you'll miss the non-existent deadline. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, j- just another quick reminder, uh, you can subscribe to our podcast feed at Real Vision Presents. And we also release a video version every week uh, released for subscribers. You can grab a free 14-day subscription if you want to. And you can sign up for that 14-day free trial by going to realvision.com slash knock on effect. Yep. Great. See you guys next week. Toodle pit, guys. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.